Hello and welcome to episode two of Broken Oars, uh, which is the world's uh, first and indeed best rowing podcast. Welcome back. If you've listened to our outstanding first episode, you'll know what we're all about. But if you're new to it, and indeed because we didn't bother covering it last time, here's a little bit more information. I'd like to introduce uh, the co-founder of the Broken Oars podcast and indeed the co-host. And some would say, possibly not me, the brains of the organization, um, Dr. Lewin Hines, who is uh, the fastest man ever to row with the finish of a berserker removing an axe from the chest cavity of a victim. Dr. Lewin Hines, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Jackson. Um, and I would, of course, like to take uh, this opportunity to welcome to the show Dr. Aaron Jackson, who um, has got the fastest 2K erg score per unit of kidney function of any man in history and um and and in fact dr jackson is is what i like to describe as my privilege shield because this is something we'll we'll go into a little bit later but i've just realized that listening back to the first podcast which i did and it was incredible and very funny and if you haven't listened to it you should probably listen to it i do sound incredibly posh and i don't just think it's when i'm talking on like on some sort of recording i think this is just how i talk and i i realized that the fact that i was speaking to i'm i'm going to say there's only one way you're a northern barbarian and you know you are um and i was speaking to you in conversation in friendly conversation with you you are in fact my privilege shield You, you do in fact um mean that I can't be accused of that being that privilege because I have a northern friend. Uh, so I'm not that out of touch. I'm an ally to to northerners. Right. Right. I've never quite been introduced to anybody like that. Um, the bit about the kidneys, if you haven't listened to the first podcast, is true. I am the fastest man ever to rub age off with half a kidney. It wasn't actually my half of the kidney. I just I found it on the way down to from the boat shed to the water one morning and decided that we'd take it with us. Um, it was an alcoholic Mancunian's kidney. It was an alcoholic Mancunian's kidney. <laughs> who'd, who'd lost it on the way back from Salford. Indeed, but based on, on the 2K score that that kidney then pulled, I would I would have firmly had him in our boat, you know, at, at some position, uh, definitely. The, the, the Northern Barbarian thing, well, yes, I suppose... I suppose I am. I've never been used as anybody's northern beard before, though. Um, I am technically a Northumbrian, um, which means I am a, the, the northernmost of the English northern barbarians. And if you know anything about the region, you'll know that Durham, where people who can't get into Oxford and Cambridge go to get their degree, um, is the land of the Prince Bishops. And we in Northumbria, we could always take the Prince Bishops in a fight. We are, we're pretty tough, we're pretty savage, and, um, but remarkably friendly when you get to know us. So yes, I'm, I'm Dr. Heinz's, or Lewin's, privilege shield. It, I'll, um, I'll let that sink in over the course of this podcast. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I have actually worked out since coming to this realization that I have many privilege shields. I'm, I'm, I may, I may be a rower who was at various points in his life privately educated, but I, I, you know, I like foreign food. I'm okay. I'm okay with garlic. It's you know, ge- genuinely, it's it's good. But anyway, we we have 
we have to we have to describe the podcast don't we we, we have we have to like make sure people understand what they're letting themselves in for for the next hour and few minutes or so I think so. I think I think that's a good idea because let's face it, the first podcast was wildly entertaining, or at least we found it wildly entertaining. I did, um, but we basically launched into it um, without really setting out any any kind of um, aims and objectives. So we'll we'll do some housekeeping now, and you know, set some context, and uh, hopefully that'll give you a reason if you are going to turn off, why you're turning off, and a reason why you're going to stay and listen, which of course you are, uh, why you will stay and listen. So. Um, the basic aims of the podcast over to dr hines whose brainchild it was and what a brain it is and what a child it is <laughs> well basically we are we are both men of a certain age who have spent vastly more time than is actually sensible for our lives um engaged in the sport of rowing one way or another and i think we came to the opinion that rowing was fundamentally always better about 10 to 15 years ago regardless of what the actual current year is 10 to 15 years ago rowing was better and you know to give you an example of this think of the people who were rowing for great britain 10 to 15 years ago so so first of all you, you've got james cracknell the man the hair the arrogance the man who once on the bbc said that rowing the old boat was like having sex with the old girlfriend you knew what buttons to push to get a result he said that on the bbc and you know it's 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 brilliant and then at the other end of the scale you know you've got the you've got steve williams okay people know who steve williams was he he won two gold medals he rode in two olympics he got gold medals in both of them He's technically as good as Eric Murray. Um, he's climbed Everest. He's been to the North Pole. And he actually didn't tell anybody about it very much. He just did it. And, and I, you know, he's probably got a real job and everything. And he, he doesn't do the cracknell thing. Now, if you compare that to today, name four guys from the British eight. If, if, if you're a sports fan, you can probably name the guys who won in 2000, maybe even 2004. But name four guys from the British Eight today. You you might even struggle to name the winning four. You know, I, even I, I, I love the sport. And the 2016 GB team was very nice, very tall, but just fundamentally anonymous and you know the rio eight i mean you you you've got you had the son of pinson peter reed and andy triggs double barreled but you know who, who else was in that boat other than will satch who, who who we remember because he's ginger and i i just i just think that rowing is increasingly anonymous and robotic today and and we are you know we 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 need some more spice in there fundamentally and yeah. i think what you're saying is we we come from the era of big personalities you you have red gray very big 
Redgrave, who was essentially hewn from granite somewhere by Viking stonemasons and then set free in a boat. You have Matthew Pinson, who can actually technically trace his descent all the way back to God. <laughs> yeah. James Cracknell, who, um, as well as moments of massive tonsorial instability, you always knew where James Cracknell was in the room. Even if you were in Newcastle and he was in a room in London, you knew all about James Cracknell. You had Tim Foster, who unfairly was labelled as the technician of the boat, and he was a superb technician. But, you know, this is the man who put his hand through a plate glass window, severing the major tendons, might never have rown again, and asked the doctor... How long before I can play the piano? And the doctor said six to nine months. And he th- said, thank God, I've never been able to play it before this. Um, <laughs> and yes, there is that sense that rowing was always ten was always better 10 to 15 years ago. And that's just a general thing in the sense of, I think you mentioned in the first podcast, if we were back in the days of the Romans, the, you know, the people who worked with the double bank doors would now be going, oh, look at them with their triple banks of oars in the triremes. Rowing was better in our day when the galley slave would only beat you twice a week and then all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think what we're basically saying is that the, the era of big personalities um, has somewhat come to an end and rowing seems not bland. We're not going to say that about fantastic young men and women who are operating at a, at a, a level I can't dream of. You can, because you have the scores to back it up. Um, and we wish, them, we wish them every success. But yes, James Cracknell, you know, rows across the Atlantic, writes a book about it. James Cracknell runs the Marathon de Sable, writes a book about it. James Cracknell gets hit, hit by a truck and beats the truck in America, writes a book about it. Steve Williams does amazing things, amazing things. And, um, doesn't say a word about it. It's great. He's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I think he's a classic bowsider in the way that um, possibly James Cracknell wasn't. Um, in as much as bowsiders, and I speak as a bowsider, and I'm talking to a stroke sider, bowsiders are the people who make your boat feel amazing and yet never say anything about it. Stroke siders are the equivalent of um, goal-hanging number nines who win you the World Cup and then never stop telling you about it, even though they did nothing for 90 minutes before scoring the winning goal. They're all about the glory, where about the guts and the flow and the precision and all of those things. Look, you just make us go in a straight line so we can collect the medals. Just accept accept your position in life, all right? You sit yeah. at the back of the boat and, you know, <laughs> you, 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 talk, you talk about things like flow and precision and timing and then we, we thug it along and, and get you there. Yes, that's basically the division of labour between stroke side and bow side, which I'm sure at some point will turn into a full-blown fist fight on a podcast. But we need to say from the off that this is not this is not two men at a certain time of life being old curmudgeons. We, this is not Rowan's version of the classic journey from reactionary youth to conservative middle age, which someone like Wordsworth did. Joy it was to be alive, you know, and, and um, at the time of the French Revolution when he was young and vigorous, and, and it was, a change was in the air, and then by the end of his life, he was a, a reactionary conservative with small and large seas. Um, essentially, rowing, uh, rowers, are, rowers enact this, this dialectic, this journey from reactionary youth to conservative middle age every single time they wake up in the morning, because what you have with rowing is you have a sport where you everyone is a rampant individual, and yes, James, I am thinking of you again, but I'm also thinking of people that I've rowed with, um, but you have to fit that individuality into the demands of a crew-based sport. 
So we're simultaneously reactionary because we think we know everything and we're right about everything anyway, and conservative because we like things to stay the same. I'm not going to adjust my seat. My seat has been fixed in this position for the last nine months. Why would it? Oh, that's why I would do it, so that I could actually tap down properly. That kind of thing. You, you, so, you say this about wanting th- stuff to stay the same, but I, I am a proponent for hydrofoil-based boats in rowing. Um, we, I, don't, I don't think we should go into that because... I think people should actually effort. just get out there and look up hydrofoil rowing boats on on YouTube. But the potential is immense for, you know, for nothing else. I mean, it might mean we start needing to wear things like helmets in a rowing boat. Um, and, you know, we're, we're actually going to have to bank as we go around corners on the river. It. it Potentially, it's incredible. But sorry, no, no, yeah, yeah. fine. You know, I, I mean, for some of us who can't actually hold the center line in a boat, we bank when we go in a straight line anyway. So banking when we go around corners shouldn't be too much of a problem. Uh, and I'm going to just let the listeners know why we don't actually talk about hydrofoil rowing, Lewin, Doctor Hines, because if we did, our friendship would come to an end, and that is is basically it. You you row in a boat <laughs> that sits on the water. We don't no, not flies above it. Yeah, we don't have any any truck with this idea of, of, of effortless, frictionless rowing. It has to be hard. It has to be brutal. I mean, I'm still getting my head around the fact we use carbon fiber. I mean, what's wrong with what's wrong with you know red plank cedar for the shell and and you know ash for the oars? They hardly bend and snap at all. Uh, we, we, I, we are going to get someone else on the podcast in a future episode who will tell us all about this. And, and literally, he doesn't believe in the, in the mission of Broken Oars podcast. He believes that rowing was better 25 to 30 years ago, wow, which I mean, I, I mean, fr- frankly, that means that he actually believes that Martin Cross was a good rower. But never mind. Well, um, that, should, that comment alone should set the Twitter sphere alight. <laughs> um that's pretty reactionary. I mean, we're we're going ten to fifteen years, and he's going twenty five to thirty. That's big. That's that's. Yeah, big. I mean, he he is he is a very clever man. Uh, I mean, he is literally one of these people who did learn to row in a wooden boat with wooden oars, and he's very very good at rowing. Um, we, we'll uh, we'll talk about him more. So when we when we talk about some of the other things, but. He believes that one of the things that went wrong in rowing was the move to the the fiberglass and the carbon fiber boat. He basically said just at that point, you started to make it. It 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 went from this sport of where there was a huge amount of art involved to a sport where it started to be increasingly about the raw power and the science of making human beings into engines. Um, Can I just ask something? He, he talks about rowing as an art. Was he a, was he a bowsider primarily by any chance? Um, actually, actually, th- this is the thing. He he is by Swepshaw. Um, he, <laughs> he 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 can literally row any position. And any oar in the boat, he is as good on stroke side as he is on bow side. When he rowed in a pair with me, he had to be on bow side because me rowing on bow side. Uh, well, you've experienced it. There, there are only kind of like three crabs in the two thousand meters we rowed down Dorney at, at Marlow Regatta, but, um, yeah, but it actually might have been met. But 
uh, yeah, it, it was it was a mess, and I accept that this is the great weakness in my game. I, I've never I started as a bowsider, and then somebody said, oh, actually, no, we." So it, it was it was at Norwich. It was one of those places where you didn't have that many rowers. And we had another by Swepshaw who decided, actually, no, you know, I want to row on bow. And so they stuck me on stroke side and I was the rank novice. And classically, I was the guy who was who literally just come into the boat and had the biggest erg score in the boat, but just could not row. So I, I was in there. And we did a few races and it worked quite well, but um, fundamentally there was just a rawness I couldn't get over. Um, and it's a very wobbly boat and that's probably entirely my fault. Um, actually, no, it was the Cox's fault. It was the Bowen's fault. Always the Cox's fault. It's, it's always, always the Cox. It, it, always. always. And, and always. you know, can we just say that, that our Coxes at age Croft, Lucy and Maddie, were superb. They were world-class Coxes. Um, so where they are the exceptions that prove the rule, of course, but every other cox um, has always upset the balance of our boats. Uh, and can we also just say, if anyone is still listening to this, that we have trademarked the term bi-sweptual, um, which means that you can row on both sides of the boat because it is a superb way of describing it. Um, to- unfortunately, I, there is some prior art to that term. Um, it was actually invented by a teenage girl I was once involved in coaching, which was um, rather worrying and very, very funny of her. But she was um, she, she was capable of being enormously inappropriate um, at the boathouse when she wanted to be. Okay. I've, I've known people like that, and all of them are rowers, so that pretty much fits with the template. Indeed. So basically... We're talking about rowing, not to be old curmudgeons, but actually because we genuinely love the sport. It is Indeed. completely unlike any other sport. Um, its demands are such, even at a, a even at a club level, even at a basic club level, you know. And if you're going for Henley and Nat Champs and those kind of things, that uh, you know, the demands are such. It asks so much of you that once you've rowed, you're always a rower, whether you're on the water or not. It just lives on in you because. The thing is, when you're a rower, all you think about is rowing. Even when you're at work, you're thinking about the session you've just done or the session that's to come or the race at the weekend or the outing last weekend or what, what five is doing with this finish. Always five. Always five. I never rowed a five. Well, I did actually with you once, and it was my finish. Um, so we thought about it all the time. And even when you leave the sport, because it takes up so much time, you know, it's a big hole in your life to fill. But also, you still think about it because you've always thought about it. It's just—it's one of those things, and it, it does become an enormous habit. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever Loon and I catch up, um, whether it's on the phone or by Skype or even just you know wildly abusive uh, texts and WhatsApp messages, <laughs> um, we always end up talking about rowing, even though we're not getting ready for Henley or Nat Champs or any of those things. It's just—it's put thumbprints on us. So that's why we're doing the podcast. And, and and it's also a genuine metaphor for life. It what, really you, is. What you get as much you, you get out what you put in, and somebody else at the back of will always fuck it up for you. Yes, that. And 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 in yeah, and w- w- whenever you get eight nine people together working on a goal to the absolute extent of their ability, there's always going to be one person in there who's a complete freeloader and you've just got to accept it. 
you, you've, you've just got to accept there's someone with like a 715 2k probably sitting in the 70 and talking about <laughs> you know just how great their catch and their rhythm and their flow is and you know you, you're just thinking Oh God, never mind. The- but you put up with them. I mean, it's it's a it's a great way of learning to put up with people who you just think could be slightly better than they actually are, because it's just too difficult and too expensive to replace them and retrain someone else. Um, if, if I, can I just ask? Are you talking about the seven man in your boat before you joined us? Because I was the seven man in our boat, and I was superb. Uh, no, no. I, oh, it is me you're talking about. Then. No, it, it it's it's just. <sighs> Okay, I I have never really uh, there's only I can count the number of rows when I've been in an eight and been sat in the bows. It's a rare rare thing for me. So so I very rarely sat in the bows, and I was like I'm I, I was incredibly aware that uh, you had someone sitting behind you that you couldn't see. For about an hour, hour and a half, he was telling you everything that you'd done wrong with your stroke when you couldn't see anything they were doing. And you know, potentially that bowman is the most important person in the boat and is like making the boat sing and keeping it going in a straight line. And potentially they're a freeloading bastard. So it's 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 just I I had a difficult difficult relationship with people sat in the bows that I didn't tell them about. But anyway, I, I think I think we should crack on. I, I, I think we need to get through our our, our points. Yeah. So, but just to just to finish, we'd like to make it clear we're not talking about Mark Hancock because he he was he was man, great. He was superb. He made any boat feel better. And we will at some point do a podcast about the great rowing excuses of the world, um, which includes what, why you yeah, which is which includes why you didn't get the two K score that you thought that you would. And why you should be in the boat, even though you're 30 seconds slower than everybody else, because you have such wonderful technique. Which, and I'm a man who 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 preaches the gospel of technical application, and even I know that that is complete and utter bollocks. You have to be able to pull and row. It's just the way that it is. And I speak as somebody who Dennis O'Neill will tell you never fulfilled his potential because I never got below 6:30 for my 2K. Half a kidney. However, moving on. We've said this is the world's first and greatest podcast, and I've lied to you by saying that because, Dr. Hines, are there other podcasts out there? On the there screen? are other podcasts, and, and we shall, we shall, as the kids say, give a shout out to them. Um, there is Wayne, the Way Enough Rowing podcast, unsurprisingly, um, done by Americans, um, by two characters known as Short and Snarky Coxwains. Um, it's relatively light-hearted and uncontroversial, uh, with the enormous advantage that the two lead participants sound very pretty. They have lovely voices. Okay. Um, then there's Decent Rowing, which is Australian and very serious. Y- you know those serious, intense Australians? Yeah. You know, it's, it's serious. It's about, it's about technique. It's about power. It's about winning the Olympics, mate. Um, so we're not talking about Australians like, for example, Aussie Ben, a man who would organise 260 members of Agecroft to go and get shit-faced in Manchester while wearing Santa costumes. 
no, no. We're we're talking we're talking about we're talking about serious Australians. We're we're talking about we're talking about the reason that a, a country with a population of twelve million people or whatever it is these days has won more Olympic medals than all of France. We're going to have to look that up, aren't we? But I'm just I'm just going to say they they they've won more Olympic medals than all of France and Spain and Portugal put together. Um, that's, a, that's, that's interesting. Actually. That's interesting. I mean, I we'll, we will check the facts because we're coming to our factual accuracy. But we mentioned in the first podcast that essentially um, France sent all of France sent its convicted men to row in the galley because <laughs> it was a worse punishment than death. While Britain actually um, sends its finest sons its to finest row for Jürgen into the boat because it was a it was a noble and wonderful pursuit. Um, so Australia, who who do have some, and I am I am not jingoistic, and, and I have many Australian friends, and I, I have no Australian beard friends. Um, in their history, there there was a certain amount of convict transaction down under. So is is there is there not a link between? You know, the, um, the French sent convicts to row and they're not very good, but Australia, who do have some kind of convict rootstock in there, are fantastically tough and hard at it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, kind of, I kind of think that the dichotomy in Australians, that there's like the fun Australians who may well have been the convicts and there's the, um, there's the serious Australians who may well have been descended from like the overseers of the convicts. I'm I'm not entirely sure, but I'm aware that this the decent rowing, it's very serious. It's about rowing. It's it's about technical rowing. It's about how you take a big lad or lass from New South Wales and turn them into an Olympic champion. Um, so it's it's important. Um, my research has then brought up, it constantly brings this up. It's something called still rowing guys. If you want a rowing podcast, don't listen to still rowing. It's about people recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction and using God to do it. Now this is all, this is, this is good. I'm in favor of people recovering from, um, alcoholism and drug addiction. And if you want to use God to do it, you go right ahead. But, it's still rowing podcast is not about rowing. Um, then you've got any rowing in it at all. Have you been able to, I, do, I honestly don't think so. Um, okay. I, I, I genuinely don't think so. I, I haven't listened to it because I looked at the blurb and I, I just thought, I don't think this is for me. Um, okay. I have a coffee problem, not a drug problem. Um, then you've got rowing resources which is again is very serious he's run by a guy called travis gardner who is a former international standard american lightweight so basically he's wrong about everything and you've got the rowing ireland podcast which is only five episodes in and it and it seems to be right it you know it's rowing ireland it, it's like the people who do rowing in ireland and given the current talent and verbal hilarity of some of the people involved in that squad, I think it's probably worth a listening listen to. But those are other podcasts and this is broken oars. And 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 frankly, any time you know, they're rowers, we're rowers. If you put two rowers together, 
both of them will think they're the best and the first. So we consider ourselves to be the best and the first. I, I believe that is a good way of putting it. If you put two rowers on an erg, we, they will automatically try and beat each other. So we mean no disrespect to everybody else in the field. It's just it's just a sort of natural, self-respecting, competitive thing that any any oarsman worth their salt, or oarswoman, or indeed oars person, would say. So we may not be the first and best now, but we're confident that by the end of the race we will we will be. And if we're not, well, there's always another race. There's always another. Yeah. There's always there's another. Yeah. Um, so moving on and getting through. Our, this is just our housekeeping, by the way, chaps. We hope you're enjoying it, and chapesses. Uh, well, currently, we decided to do a podcast by basically saying, let's do a podcast and pretty much the next day Skyping each other and recording it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, pretty I much. Think so. so um, I, mean, I, I think there might have been 48 hours or something in there. I think it was 48 hours, but it was, I think we should, we all we ever talk, I think you said all we ever talk about is rowing and training. Um, we should do a podcast. And then 48 hours later, we Skyped, and that's basically the first episode, which is a cracking first episode. Um, if you haven't listened to it yet, please do so. Pass it on to all of your rowing friends. Um, but in rowing terms, we went out on the water without a purpose, the equivalent of getting in a pair and just having a rip at it. And, and yes, possibly possibly the audio quality, which, which my esteemed colleague... Dr. Aaron Jackson is very, very concerned about because he is a musician. He is um, an audiophile, um, whereas I am not. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, as long as you can understand us, you're fine. And uh, we're running for Tideway Scholars anyway, so we had right of way, and it's <laughs> fine. Um, so you know, it it it's it it's the way things are on the Thames. It's the way things are. Um, if, if 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 you've got red and yellow blades, you're in the right. Um, okay. But anyway, so so what we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna carry on using Skype at this point to to get it down. But uh, we're also gonna work on the audio quality because we we realise that you're used to a certain level and uh, we will we will attain that level I, at the moment. We're getting the pair up and running, and uh, we'll work on the technical aspects as we go, as well as the physical aspects, which is basically me and him taking the uh, the rise out of each other. Um, one other thing that we wanted to mention as well is that um, we'll do a little bit of housekeeping at the start of every episode, and one of those features will be a fact check. Now, I think it's fair to say that um, we're rowers, so we're fairly opinionated, and as rowers, We've never let facts get in the way of our strong opinion, but we also um, we also understand that you know getting certain things wrong, like Matthew Pinson's inside leg measurement or how many medals Steve Redgrave won at the Olympics at six because he got the bronze with Andy Holmes back in the day. Um, we have to get certain things right, um, and sometimes we will we won't. So if we get something wrong, or if you draw our attention to the fact that we've got something wrong, we'll, we will try and fix it. However, before we say what we got wrong in the last episode, there are a couple of things. Facts are facts. The causal explanations between them can differ from person to person. So we'll, we'll try and get our facts right, but sometimes you might um, differ from us on the point of interpretation of those facts. Uh, so that's just a little disclaimer. So on that note, what did we get wrong last week? Well, I mean, strictly strictly speaking, 
I got it wrong. I, I, for some reason, I had in my head that the first Olympics that Jürgen trained the the Pinsent Cracknell pair for was Atlanta. It was completely wrong. It's not true. Um, Jürgen came over here after the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, and he was training uh, that glorious pair for uh, um, Barcelona in '92. Yes. So yeah. that yes, um, that that was very much a mistake. But we, but yes, but we touched upon it because we were talking about changes in training and the, the, where the high volume approach in British rowing actually came from. Uh, so yes, he he came over after the fall of the Berlin Wall. The uh, the president of Leander sold the club on him by taking him through the prettiest parts of the home counties and then over the bridge into Leander and saying you could work here which really sounds like a very fair and transparent interview process. We'll get to that at some point. Barcelona, it is in Redgrave's book, which, believe me, we will come to in a later episode. Uh, We will come to the subject of rowing memoirs and elite sportsmen and medal winners writing books. Um, It's a bad idea in general, isn't it? It's just like... I think there's there's possibly the idea that because you can do one thing very well at a certain level, it doesn't necessarily mean you can do something else with the case of steve red are you talking about rowers and cycling I'm, i may be talking about putting <laughs> on rowers and cycling as we did in the first episode um in the case of steve red redgrave you have an epic narrative an absolutely epic narrative uh, a man literally hewn from granite by viking stonemasons and set free in a boat a man who who faced down diabetes colitis and james cracknell's hairstyles and yet his boots which i do have um it's tough going. It's basically the literary equivalent of a 21K on a Monday morning when it's pissing down and you're still sore from the weekend. It's tough to get through, man. We'll get, But we'll get to it. But anyway, it's in Red Graves' book. And the other thing that we would like to point out is we talked about lightweights, which brought in the uh, People's Republic of China, I believe. Yes, and I would just like to point out at this moment, um, Hail Z. The, uh, the greatest leader of the Chinese nation and its peoples of all time. Um, we are happy to buy their products and catch their viruses. So, um, we can probably edit that one out. <laughs> yeah, we might have to. <laughs> okay, um, you, you, know, you know how I said, so, you know, uh, the Way Enough Rowing podcast. That's the kind of thing that you're just not going to hear on the Way Enough Rowing podcast. You're not going to hear any mention of just, you know, no. um, Things like that will not be said there. But moving on swiftly before before there's a drone strike on my house. Yes. So we did not imply that um, there is state-sponsored doping going on. Um, We're never going to imply that. Even though there are, you know, historically there are, there's evidence that um, communist or formula, former communist countries may have had a tendency towards doing that. We believe in giving everybody a fair and sporting chance. And if you're caught and you do turn out to be a cheat, then you should piss off and never row or compete again. That's just a personal view. Um, I, I yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm going to say I second that. I'm going to say that like what's caught in the sport of rowing is is one too many times um i i, I don't i don't think we we uh I'm, I'm not into second chances whatever that may mean yeah we don't we, basically we don't want rowing to become like cycling um oh did i say that out loud 
No, not the cyclist. The cyclist has a long and noble history. Uh, long and they noble. They don't. History. No, we can't say that. I think so any, I think any not sport. Have a long and noble history. I mean, literally, somebody invented like a a double triangle frame with two wheels on the end, and then someone else took some speed to go faster on it. It I, it it it's been, you know, as much. As much as I love cycling, as much as I love the sport of cycling, I love the Tour de France. I love all of it. There, there, there is very there. Are, I don't think there are any competitive events you can show me on a bicycle that I don't. Oh, that's great! I love that. But it it is just dirty as a very dirty thing. It always has been. It always will be. But anyway, yeah, I think. I think we should give some credit to a sport that whose flagship event in its early days people got round by taking a combination of beaten eggs and strychnine because it was. So <laughs> you, have to, you have to admire people who are willing to suffer for their sport by by doing that. I think. The, but yes, the, I, 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 again, it's the strychnine thing that for me is the greatest argument against the legalization of drugs in rowing because yeah i mean the number of people who've died that well i don't know how many people but i know of at least one who died because they were racing whilst taking brandy and strychnine or, or possibly beaten eggs and strychnine it, it's just ridiculous who even does that who takes strychnine to Okay, nobody has ever rode under the influence of strychnine. I'm prepared to state that as a fact, certainly not this century. And if we legalise drugs in sport, strychnine's coming back because people are going to take all the Edgar, all the Tren, all the Clen, all the Anavar, and then they're still not going to be going fast enough, and then they're going to take strychnine. And... Just, just no, no. I'm sorry, we can't have that. We can't have strychnine in rowing. And I have to. And can we just say as well? Um, even though my two K, my two K score was was hideously slow, I was never offered strychnine by any of my coaches to make me go faster. <laughs> I was offered strychnine by my coaches to make me go away, but never to <laughs> make me go faster. So. We, we weren't that kind of club at yeah. Ashcroft. So housekeeping done. We will we will check the facts. Um, we will get them as right as we can, and if we make massive errors, we will apologise for them and simultaneously take the piss out of the fact that we got it wrong. Okay. Here is what, here's what we think we should do for the second episode. Having basically launched the first one by just putting it on the water and ripping it, we're going to give you a little bit of context about ourselves and our background. So we're going to talk about um, how we got into rowing, maybe move into what what pathways are available now for rowers. Uh, possibly the 2K distance if we have time, and also racing in lockdown if we have time. Does that sound yes. like a reasonable plan of action? I, I I think that I think that's brilliant, and I also think sort of like certainly my story of, and I think yours too, of how I got into rowing also illuminates kind of like something that's very true of rowing and very kind of. Um, so it, it 
it's very true of rowing, but and and it's possibly one of the biggest flaws of rowing is that it's actually even though a rowing club is genuinely very friendly to get into, it's kind of like a beehive. Once you're in, you're accepted, mm. but it's quite painful to get in there sometimes. Um, so, I mean, as, 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 I know, as, as some of your um, stingy barbs may have informed people, I, I got into rowing through rowing machines, through... I, I was an erg monster in the gym, um, and this and this means that I have I have a no professionals on a Tuesday night story. Now everybody wants a no professionals on a Tuesday night story, preferably involving paintball, laser tag, or the best one is go kart racing, when you go along and with absolutely no experience or coaching do so incredibly well, the manager comes up to you and says, oi, mate, you know the rules, no professionals on a Tuesday night. Stay away next week. Come to the, come to the proper session on a Friday night. Um, and I, I was basically battering away on a rowing machine um, with altogether too much knee compression and not enough rock over. I remember, I remember my stroke was, I like to think of it as being fluid in the Matthew Bucknell sense. The, the honest truth, it was probably just floppy. The drag was turned up to 10. I was doing everything that a gym rower should probably be told not to do, apart from the fact I was actually going quite fast. And somebody who I'd seen earlier do like proper rowing, very stiff, upright back, you know, rate 18, going properly slow for improvement of his aerobic capacity, came along and I actually saw him looking at my memory back on, you know, so you can scroll through the memory of the last row back on the old, um, so it would be PM2? So this is properly going back. These were were concept two model Bs or something. Uh, no, mo- no, Model C, but with with a PM2 performance monitor, and you could scroll through. And he came along and he said, "Are you a student here?" And I was at UEA at the time. I said, "No, I've, I've literally just stopped." So I just basically handed him my PhD. And he said, "Oh, oh then then you should you should probably go down to Norwich Rowing Club because you're quite good at this." And so. Yeah, that's my that's my no professionals on a Tuesday night. I was tapped up on the basis of my erg score over 15 minutes. And then I went to try and find Norwich Rowing Club. And I kind of likened this to trying to convert to Judaism because they made me work for it. I really did have to knock three times. I I I literally went down to Norwich Rowing Club. Um, you know, first of all, I couldn't even find it. It's behind a gate and you have to go down a track and there's no parking. So there's, there's like a tiny little road and there's no parking by the gate. So you can't just stop and jump over the gate and walk down there. You actually have to open the gate, drive your car down there. Um, so and and then I went down there. There was no one to call. There was no 
there's no one picked up the phone on the internet. There was a clubhouse with a phone on it, but nobody picked up the phone. Um, and it, I literally had to get myself down to the boathouse three times before I actually met someone who said, oh, you want to talk to so-and-so, who became my first coach, um, who showed me, you know, the immense complexity and ridiculous, like, counterintuitive manner of rowing a boat with oars and, you know, squaring and feathering and all these things and not rushing the slide. That was That's the weirdest thing. It's just, like, for me... Rushing the slide was just how you went faster on a rowing machine. And, um, but yeah, so, you know, a, a lot of people have talked about, you know, rowing is kind of exclusive. And, you know, I'd always say, look, if you're good, if you're strong, if you're coordinated, somebody out there will want you in a rowing boat. But I do think that one of the big, biggest problems with getting into rowing is that it's quite difficult to get hold of people who will say, oh, yes, come down at this time on this date and we'll, 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 get, you, we'll get you started out. We'll get, you, we'll get some first uh, training. But anyway, that, that, was, that was about 2003 I did that. I hung around... Um, in Norwich for another 18 months or so after that. Um, moved down to London, uh, where things started to get a bit serious, started to do some actual racing at uh, Furnival Scholars Club, even though I didn't do a great deal of sculling. Um, it was all sweep all there. Um, and with them, I won my first pot in a coxed four um, it, at Peterborough Regatta. And... It was all very cinematic, and I can still tell you exactly how that race went. So th this, this would have been summer 2005, and I can still remember pretty much every kind of like every 250 meters of that 1,000-meter race and where we were and how we were doing it, and, you know, that's, that's just it. And... I discovered in myself at that time a genuine hatred of losing. You know, it, it, before I, I was aware that possibly I was a bad loser. Um, but, but by the time, it, you know, I learned that I hated losing. I hated not being faster than other people, either on the water or on the ergo. I discovered a real joy in being faster than other people on the ergo that that was the rather unfortunate period of my life where my 2K score essentially became my self-esteem. Um, and yeah, so I was, I was at Furnival for a couple of seasons. Um, and we ended, we did go to Henley. Uh, we got unceremoniously dumped out of Henley by the eventual champions in 2005, which were Henley Rowing Club, who had been dominating things all season um you know kind of like top top 20 top 15 and head of the river you know beating foreign crews everything like that um and so they beat us on on the wednesday and they progress they beat us by two lengths on the wednesday and they beat the semi uh, the losing finalist 
by two and a half lengths on the Sunday. So as far as I'm concerned, we were half a length better than the losing finalist. Um, That's the way I calculate things. Um, Then I had a break for an... I'll just say it was an ill-advised relationship which went on for altogether too long and took me to parts of the country that I probably would never have normally gone to by myself, namely the north. Um, but I think this is this is something will probably become a recurring theme in this podcast that if you if you have a talent, if you're good at something and you've worked for something and there's someone in your life who's asking you to give up on that. If that thing that you're good at is not actually drugs or alcohol, you shouldn't really trust that person. They're not really the right person for you to be with or be around. Um, Yeah, I think. think So, you know, uh, if you've got something you're good at, anyone who's in your life should make space for that thing um, until you're ready to move away from it. Yeah. Um, but never, go on. never trust anyone who asks you to give up on a talent. People who love you and care about you will support you and help you to realise your potential. If someone asks you to give up something that you're good at, it's a it's a controlling and manipulative thing to do, and you should get them out of your life as quickly as you possibly can. And it, I, will, become, it will become something of a, a recurring theme. Yes. Yes, but a, a, a piece of advice for Young Rose, um, along with not three times if you want to join a rowing club. Um, but being in the north brought me to Agecroft, which was basically, which was very serious. Very, very serious. It's where I, it's where I learned to row properly. It's where I learned to train properly. Um, it's where I learned how to structure your entire life for a year around the first week of July and training to row for Henley Royal Regatta. It's where, to a certain extent, I learned to hate Henley Royal Regatta unless I was actually rowing there. Um, But I also learned that you should, even if you do this, even if the focus of your entire season is on the hallowed water, you should never give up on those smaller regattas. You should never give up on the smaller provincial regattas because it's where rowing is fun rather than brutally rewarding. It, it, it's, where, it, it's where it's all happy and the sun is shining and if all you do is rock up in October spend what six months at that point working your way through to head of the river doing very long ergos and very long rows um basically through the brutality and the grimness of winter on in the boat and then winter in the north is very different winter in the north indeed um and then you kind of spend the next three months traveling to Dorney Lake and back for the three, for the three big regattas, the, um, Met, Marlow and Wallingford. And then from there you go on to Henley. You shouldn't, you should never let your season just stop at Henley. 
you should go to Peaceborough, you should go to St. Neots. Even if you like, even if you do silly things like swap sides in the boat or you row pairs or you row singles or something like that, you should go along to these small little regattas where you can just row for the sheer love of it. Yeah. Um, and also because, you know, we get into rowing for various reasons, but we also do it because it's fun. And these, these regattas are, you know, it's great to row at Henley and it's great to do Nat Champs and that kind of thing, but they are the lifeblood of British rowing. You know, these small out-of-the-way regattas where people are volunteering and turning up, um, you know, we have to support them as much as we support the big events because otherwise there's no grassroots. And also, the key point you made there is it's incredible fun. It's great fun. It, 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 it's an absolutely brilliant day out. Um, and... You know, particularly if you're going to a regatta that's an hour and a half away from home rather than a four-hour drive, it's, you know, you, you spend all day thrashing yourself into the ground and then you really, and then you've got an hour and a half home and you have a few beers and it's it's just great. It's a fantastic day out and and you can, and very often the racing is better and closer you know so some of the best races i've had have been in you know scratch boats uh, you know down on the river seven in bristol just calling up a mate who i'd rode with before and saying oh shall we meet up so yeah come down for this regatta we'll put a boat together and you know win or lose it was 750 side by side when it, it was never that thing that sort of like some you know a 2K race, it can be done. The positions can be finalised, particularly at the club level, by 350 metres in. Um, and you, you, there's, there's a greater sense of kind of urgency and a lack of finality in, in, uh, in the shorter club regattas that, that is, is genuinely brilliant, and I love it. And then... Um, and once, once I left Agecroft, this time for a very good relationship um, with the lady who is now my wife, um, I moved down, moved down to Maidstone. And this is very much where I learned the enormous pleasure of small boats, the, the doubles, the singles, and the pairs. Um, I also learned that people who are smaller and weaker than you Honest to God, they can move a boat, and and there is there is that in effort that kind of I'd never been entirely certain until I moved to Maidstone about this concept of boat moving ability. I always thought it's just look, it's just well applied power. But the fact is that there are people out there who can't put seven minutes for their two k who actually can row incredibly well and make the boat move incredibly quick and guide you to winning race after race after race. Um, and I think one of the things about the timing of that was that I then became, at, at the instigation of this fine gentleman who, who showed me just how important technique is, that... I then became a master's rower 
right about the time that the um, the PRI point system kicked in. So I didn't have to worry about the PRI point system. I could still go and race head races as a Masters B rower and win those without worrying that it meant I was going to be racing guys from Leander in the summer. Um, so that was a real that was a real bonus for me. And then, um, not particularly sadly, um, my water rowing career took a significant hiatus with a new job and two children who come along and they they sort of like they take a lot of time that you would otherwise spend on on rowing. But that that is my story. That is my story of how I got into rowing and your and your trajectory through it. And I think it raises probably some things that. I will touch on in, in, in how I got into rowing, especially with, with, I like the idea of rowing as a beehive. Once you're in and you're accepted by the rest of the, of the, of the flock, is it a flock of bees? Is it a, is it a tribe? Swarm. Swarm. Swarm of bees. Okay. Swarm. I quite like the idea of them flocking, you know, in much the same way that, you know, the buffaloes of the American plains used to flock from hither and thither across the horizon. Um, but once you're in, once you're in, you're in. You become part of a, a club's internal mechanics and dynamics, and you're pretty much accepted. But getting in can be interesting, and I wonder. There's I'm gonna, fundamentally I'm, I'm, a big energy barrier to overcome. I think so, but I think it might be, or it might have been when we started. It might have been a mechanism for clubs to, because rowing demands a huge amount of commitment and energy. And coaches are incredibly time pressed because rowers are very rowers for all their individuality need a lot of hand holding and they, they need they, they like having a coach. And rowers are and, and coaches can be spread very thin. So maybe if people are showing up going, I want to learn to row, maybe they make it a little bit difficult for them to see how much they really want it. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm I, I know that sounds absurd in in an age when, when rowing is um, has modelled itself as a a sport of diversity and inclusion but if i tell my story of how i got into rowing you might understand why i think that way and why why back then there might have been that kind of well show me how much you want it prove it because here's here's how i got into rowing um unlike dr hines luna i am not an imposing physical specimen i top out at about six foot two and about 13 stone 10 um, and weirdly enough, my, my birthday is um, the end of the school year. So essentially, from a very early age, I was always, I was always the smallest and the weakest at, at, at school. Um, and that's not a sob story. It's just, it's just a fact of life that, that if, you are, if you are four when everybody else is five, it is, it is a, it's a massive, there's a massive distance at that age. There's, the gap of the year is a massive distance to overcome, especially with physical pursuits. Growing up in the Northeast, where football is king, even though we don't have, you know, particularly amazing football clubs at the moment. Um, I was. Watching, don't worry, uh, you know, Dubai will buy somebody, and you know, it'll all be great again. Yeah. Well, it, it worked. It worked for Manchester City, I suppose. Um, Nothing I else did. What, I think what a PE teacher would describe me as um, back in those days was a, what was their worst nightmare, basically, an enthusiastic <laughs> trier, somebody who 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 
ran around and gambled around and ex- exuded massive amounts of energy, but wasn't particularly physically coordinated or blessed. Um, and th- so that kind of continued. And then, it, and then for some reason, at the age, at the age of 18, I, I, I got a growth spurt, which was five years late. And I suddenly went from being four foot nothing to being six foot two and, you know, 13 and a half stone. And um, really, really well equipped for physicality, long legs, broad shoulders, great, great heart and lungs. Didn't know about the kidneys at that time, so I didn't really bother about them. And I ended up, I got into going down to the gym, which was fun, but fundamentally unsatisfying. I got into uh, running for Bladen Harriers when I realized that a 14-stone man cannot run a half marathon as fast as, as his 10-stone running buddy, no matter how hard he tries and how many hamstrings he rips. Um, then I, when I lived in London, I got into boxing, which was great. And boxers, you know, rowers are fit. Boxers are super fit. Um, but I'm not, not, I didn't get into it because I liked hitting people. I just I enjoyed the workout. And then um, I ended up in Manchester, uh, which, you know, seems to be a common thread in both of our stories and I can say honestly that I got into rowing because uh, I was looking for a sport that resonated and I was inspired and I was inspired because like millions of other people on the night of Redgrave's last stand when he won the fifth gold medal I stayed up late to to watch and it was incredible it was absolutely incredible um it was heart-stopping, nail-biting, and despite what Matt Pinson and Steve still say about we had another gear, the Italians were coming. They the, were the, coming hard. They were coming really hard. And and now having having raced and having competed, you don't have another gear at that stage. There's not. You can't just suddenly drop it and push the accelerator. You're you're flat out at that stage. It was amazing. And and I'd watched the gold fever. Um, documentary which is fantastic which comes back to the era of big personalities and i was intrigued by how something so essentially pointless as moving a boat down a river could mean so much could mean so much to these four individuals that cracknell would essentially sacrifice his girlfriend and his physical health in an attempt to get it foster would you know put himself through back surgery and an injury redgrave would roll on through colitis and diabetes. Pinson just serenely moved through it all with, with the air of one to the man of born that this, this gold medal was just waiting for him to pick it up. Um, and such disparate personalities, and yet they came together. They came together in this common purpose. And I thought, this is interesting. It's, this is obviously hard. I saw Redgrave collapsing off, off the erg, you know, on his battle dress 2K, the one where Pinson broke the British record and then leapt up to help his friend. You know, I, I'm, you know, I may be suggesting that there should have, there was an extra gear there that Matty should have maybe, maybe kicked in a lot earlier. Um, but then what, 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 what was the, what was the quote from uh, Rory Ross? Um, everyone thought that Matthew Pinson was going to break the world record if he could be bothered. Yes, I suppose it must be nice to be so physically blessed that you don't have to be particularly bothered and still be better than everybody else. Everyone else. So I um, I was intrigued, and I saw the final, um, and I thought this is I'm looking for something. This seems like something I should try. This appeals to my personality. This appeals to the bits of me that are stubborn and driven. This appeals to the bits of me that are physical. This this just appeals to me. And at the time, I had a um, 
My partner at the time, a lovely lady who was a fantastic oarswoman, technically superb, more, more medals than you could shake a sticker, and a lovely person to boot, was rowing for Agecroft. And the next morning, the morning after Redgrave's last stand, I went down to Agecroft at half seven in the morning, hung over, thinking, I want to be a rower. And there was a group of about 12 other people there who had obviously seen the same thing and decided that they wanted to be rowers. And we were standing by what was then the boat shed, which was a, a tin shack on the side of the Irwell. And let's not forget, ladies and gentlemen, the Irwell was the river that made Engels cry and invent communism. Okay, this is not, we are not rowing through, we are not rowing through sylvan landscapes in Manchester. We are not rowing as shepherds watch their flocks. We are not rowing as rustic yeomen fork bales of hay onto horse-drawn wagons in the home counties. This is Mancunia. This is not Buckinghamshire. No, we are rowing through a desolate, bleak, blasted post-industrial landscape on a river that when the Colgate factory was still um, working, used to melt the bottoms of boats because of the chemicals that they were putting into it. I have this from, from Kev at Agecroft. Um, when they got cold, they'd just put their hands in the water in the water because it would always warm them up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. He's still got hands left, let's be quite frankly honest. So I turned up and there was 12 other people there who decided that they wanted to be rowers. And did Agecroft welcome us with open arms? Well, Agecroft welcomed us with a man called Dennis O'Neill, who is the club president and head coach, and is he is a superb president and head coach. And the fact that Agecroft have a gleaming boathouse, a fantastic gym, um, you know, a crew and squads of rowers in depth that most clubs would, would kill for is, is a testament to Dennis's drive and vision. But on that morning, he said, I'm not going to try the accent. He's Scottish. He can make good morning sound like a declaration of war. He said, you want to be rowers? Come with me. And he took us to the two, the, the, the two concept twos that the club had at, at the time, which were in the water sports centre, uh, which we weren't allowed in. We had to get changed on the, on the side of the dock while Geordie hen parties whooped and catcalled and threw money at us from the hotel opposite us. Um, and he said, you want to be rowers? Right. 2K. This is 8 o'clock in the morning with a hangover. No warm-up. Programmed in the numbers. Off you go. Let's see what you can do. You really want to be rowers? Show me what you can do. Uh, I pulled 6.46, I seem to remember, and then fell off the rowing machine going, Jesus Christ, what just happened to me? I think I'm dying. And Dennis stood over me and looked at my score and went, it's not bad, but if you want to do anything around here, you're going to have to get a lot faster come down next week and we'll see if we can get you into a boat. And I kind of went, <laughs> and, you know, went home and, and probably had a shower and went back to bed thinking, sod that. Anyway, I turned up the next week. None of the other 12 people did. And I'm just wondering if that was Dennis's mechanism for seeing how much we actually really wanted to be rowers and how much of his time he was going to give us. It's basically... If you, if you show me some commitment and you turn up, then I will commit to you. But I'm not going to give you my time unless that happens. And here's why I think that. I rode at Agecroft from 2000 till 2010. Uh, largely, it was weighted back towards you know the back end of that period for reasons I'll come to. But every four years, the next morning or during the Olympics, we would have a group of people coming down saying, 
I want to be a rower. Can you teach me to row? And Dennis's uniform response was to stick them on a two on a rowing machine and ask them to do two k, and then to come back next week. And I was just, I just, I think it was his standard weeding out process because rowing demands commitment and endurance and focus and being stubborn and and really really wanting it. And I think he, he wanted to see if they really really wanted it. And that's that's. Um, that's maybe something similar to you. Oh, okay, you want to be a rower. Well, you have to knock three times and you have to talk to such and such and such and such will tell you to talk to such and such. Anyway, I think that's that's kind of, you know, I'm sure it's more open now in terms of pathways. Um, However, I really did want to try this. I went back down the next week and I put in a a boat of novices with um, Kev, wonderful Kev. We'll get to Kev at some point. Coaching. Um, and we went out, and it was it was horrific. It it, it was like it was like a, a hippo that had been brutally hamstrung by Genghis Khan trying to get out of a mud bath, while being pelted with stones by a, a group of, of really really obstreperous hyenas who don't like hippos. We went down that river sideways. We went down that river backwards, which is not the right way to do it, despite what you might think. We went down that river looking like a spider that's just been hit by a newspaper, and then just at the end of the outing. We all took one stroke together and came out together and the boat just sat up and sang through the water. And I thought, I really, really want to do that again. I really want to do that again. Um, yeah, well, my theory is, if you if you have any golfers in, in your life, do you know any golfers? I, I, I do. I, I, I have many, many relatives that have played golf. I have even played a little golf myself. Okay. H- have they taught I, you? I can hit the ball very, very hard, sometimes I, I am, in a straight line. I imagine you can, yeah. <laughs> but have they, have they ever talked about, you know, why do you get into golf? Well, you have to, you have to wear paisley and, and you have to wear interesting, interesting um, shades and colours of knitwear. Have they ever talked about how they got into that? And... They will always say it's frustrating. It's frustrating. You want to throw your clubs away, and then you just catch it in the middle of the club, and it goes 200 yards down the fairway. It screams, screams out of the club, and um, you go, "God, I want to do that again." And it was the same with me, and and that was yeah. it. And I loved everything about the sport. Between the 2K test and that first stroke where the boat moved, really moved, I just thought this is for me. I found my sport. It really, it really resonated. Um, I like the fact you had to work hard you really did get out what you put in if you applied yourself you got better I like the feeling that every training session was money in the bank I liked feeling um, my fitness levels increasing Agecroft's training was, br- I was I thought I was fit until I, I went to Agecroft Dennis's programs were brutal but they got you incredibly fit which is why Agecroft has a reputation as being northern barbarians because we're, we might, might not be the prettiest, we might not feather m- most beautifully, we might not sit up and look so elegant in the boat, but by God, Agecroft rowers, as a man and a woman and a child, can shovel it down a river. They really can. Um, there, there, there is something to be said for just shoveling it down the river. There really is. Down the river. I, I, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to... Um, you know, I'm not going to go through my whole trajectory because I'm sure we'll talk about other events at Agecroft, but I was working in a job where I was away from Manchester a lot at the time, and I got out as much as I could, but then I, I got an offer of doctoral funding, and I had a choice of um, Newcastle 
Manchester uh, and Oxford, but not the proper Oxford, the, the Oxford Brooks. Just kidding, Oxford Brooks, you produce world-class old men and women. Um, and I chose Manchester, and, and that being in Manchester coincided with a period of people like yourself, Ben, Mark, Matt, uh, Ali Chapman, everybody who ended up in our boats, Justin, people like that, all arriving at, at the club. And we, we had the same goals. We wanted to row in these races. We wanted to get to, to Henley. And, and Agefrock is a club of, of really good oarsmen and women. You know, you're training next to people who go on to represent their country. You're training next to people who have erg scores that, that frankly, are you know terrifying. People like Big Tom, who would pull club records and then go and make himself a cup of tea, ambling towards the kitchen, you know, <laughs> as if he hadn't broken sweat. And it was really inspiring. Um, it was really, really inspiring. And sharing a goal like we, we want to get to Henley is a bit like being a tennis player who wants to play at, at Wimbledon. You know, Henley is, we'll come to it, but it is, it is all that for rowers. It, it's rowing Valhalla. It's, it's where you want to be. And to have a group of people who you're friends with it doesn't, you know, it happens in crews, but it happens less than you think. People that you really bond with, and you you hang out with, you hang out with off the water as well as on the water, which is the, which is the odd thing because you train together so much that usually you just want to get as far away from each other as you possibly can. But actually, you know, we we would hang out and have breakfast together. We'd go out, you know, and socialise together. If if there wasn't on a rare day when there was training, we would organise spinning classes together. Um, it was it was fantastic, and I, you know, similar thing to to yourself. Um, I ended up in a relationship where rowing was taken away from me in a lot of ways, and I I really regret it because I, I missed my friends and I missed um, I missed training and I missed the shared goals and I, I actually I actually missed you know just being allowed out of the house to go and, to go and train and, and have a life, essentially. But yes, never never trust anybody who asks you to give up on a talent. Um, and yeah, so that's how I got into rowing. I, I was looking for something and I definitely found it in rowing and I, I found it at, at, at Agecroft. Um, the club and the personality suited you know, my, my personality and what I needed in my life at that time. So that's a little bit about us. I mean, does that kind of cover... I think that covers us very, very well. I mean, I, I possibly, I, I should possibly say that I, I've never lost my love for the rowing machine. I, I, I started on rowing machines. I own my own rowing machine, God help me. Um, and it is, it's a fixture in my life. If, if, if I'm not using, I, I've tried lots of other things. I've tried cycling i've tried swimming i've tried running um and all of these things make you fit but i genuinely struggle to believe that there is any kind of fit that is as fit as rowing fit frankly i i i don't i don't think there's anything that sort of like allows me to feel as physically capable of dealing with anything that the world throws at me as as the rowing machine and as training for like the gold standard distance on the rowing machine which is which is the 2k which 
I, I would agree with that. I recently caught on the Tim Ferriss podcast, which is nowhere near as good as ours, um, but he's still, he, he's trying very hard, bless him. Um, Tim, if you're listening, that's a joke. We, we, you, you, you do fantastic work. And on this episode, he had Hugh Jackman, who I have to say came across as either the world's greatest actor or a genuinely fantastically nice and positive guy. And at one point, Tim got him on the subject of his training, because as we all know from Wolverine and various other things, Hugh Jackman is seriously buff. I mean, he's, he's got he a body is. on him. Um, and he he was asked what his training routine was. And, and he said, well, as you know, he said, as long as you row and do some push ups and some squats, you've basically got everything covered. And Tim went on to say, well, you know, what do you what do you do on the rowing machine? And he said, well, essentially, uh, when he did the Australian movie with Nicole Kidman, he, he got massively buffed before the director told him that all Australian cowboys were incredibly lean and wiry men. And his coach at the time was a, was a, was a rower and said, okay, we need to get you lean while maintaining your fitness. You're going to hit the rower. And he made him, he said, basically, I did 2,000 meters in seven minutes, and I do that four times a week. And that basically gets me fit, gets me strong, moves the boat. We'll get to Big Stewart at some point. But I remember listening to that and thinking, okay, so he, he, he would do 2,000 meters in seven minutes. And I remember a session, and I'm sure you were there for this, a Dennis O'Neill session, where we had to do three by 2,000 meters at 75% or 80% of our race pace. So that would have been about 6.45 for me and about 6.20 for you, something like that. No, no, no. I, 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 if, if, if I, if I do one two k, there's never been a time when, when I, I, I think if I was doing a, if I was doing three by two k, unless I had a couple of days in between each one, yeah. um, getting, I, I know there was a time when I could do it at less than six forty for each. Yeah, I, I I I have done that. I I have snuck the average below. I imagine I imagine that you know yeah, two thousand and two thousand and eleven. I'd I'd have kind of uh, I'd have laughed in the face of of that session and, and done it at one thirty nine. But that yeah. that was as fast as I ever went. I think um, I think I think I did it with I did it with Matt with Matt Bucknell and Ben. Charles and we, I think our average percentage that we were supposed to do was about 143, 142 point something, something like that. Yeah. I, remember, I, I remember the first two were not too bad. They seared rather than crushed. I think there was a 10 minute recovery, but I remember the last one was just um, horrific, absolutely horrific. Uh, but yes, rowing does get you incredibly fit and incredibly strong. Not not gym rowing where you do five minutes and you and you your knees and your arms are all over the place, which we've all done, and, and which many people at gym still do. But actual rowing is, it's like multi-stage cycling, but without the use of EPO. It gets you really, really fit. Indeed. Yeah. It does. There's there's no two ways. Um, and and that, that kind of segues, almost as though we planned it, into, <laughs> into our second talking point um, of, the, uh, of the podcast, which is, this is something I think partly, you know, being a master's rower and master's rowing focusing on the 1K distance. I'm I'm kind of saying sort of like, should 
the 2K be the gold standard distance for rowing? Is 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 that the requirement? Is rowing, but for a shorter distance, is it still really rowing? Would it be as great? And you know, I I, I kind of think I kind of think there is you know, if, if you look at the IOC recent recommendations, there, there's been various things which would suggest that the decision is going to be taken out of our hands um, or out of the hands of rowers. Um, and we may go back to rowing on, you know, on different lengths of water for each different Olympics. So, you know, the, the standard... The standard difference distance. Um, it wasn't actually. It didn't actually come from Henley, which I I looked this up, and it didn't actually come from the the Henley Reach, which I was immensely disappointed by. It came originally from the Paris World Championships in 1883, um, where I'm not even sure. We're going to have to look this up. When did sliding seats get used first and get invented? Um, but that was the first... Go on. I believe that Jason of Jason and the Argonauts fame mentions them in his famous quest for the Golden Fleece because he said at one point he had to punch his five-man in the face, which is a standard age cross <laughs> training move because he kept, he, he kept holding his finishes in and pulling the boat down to bow side. But we will yes. test that. And, and, and just to flag up, Obviously, we're talking to a primarily a rowing audience. Who, but if, in case you're not a rower, why are we talking about the 2K? Because at Agecroft, we trained we trained very hard on fantastically detailed programs. But it was all about getting us in a, in a place. And yes, we had to. You know, we were expected to compete and win through the season. You know, we had to get the Jackson Trophy at the head of the river. We had to place highly with our other boats at head of the river. But we had to go to the other regattas in the area. And, and and perform. So you know we weren't just we weren't just aiming for Henley, but that was the long term goal of our season. And it was all about making us as sharp and as fit and as fast as we could be by the, the time we got to Met, Wallingford, um, Henley, Marlow Regatta. Before that, um, and it, that's because the two K is the standard racing distance. If you watch the Olympics, you are watching men and women battle it out over 2,000 metres, which is odd because between September and the end of March, you can row anywhere between 800 metres and 6.5k during the, the, the head season. Why has the 2k actually come in as the standard distance? Because, and here's, here's I'm just going to kind of throw this open to you, Lewin. Um, we talked last week about briefly about the ways that um, British rowing grew up in a form that's still broadly recognisable today in its infrastructure and organisation out of the kind of the imperial period and if we're talking imperial we're talking about imperial measurements aren't we we're talking about imperial yes, measurements of distances so what is wrong with a good old-fashioned British mile, 1,608 metres, however many yards it is. I, 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 could, I could even, if you need to round it down because because you you don't like freedom units, that's that's fine. You can put it down to 1,600 metres um, or even or even 800 metres. Or, I mean, sort of, you can argue that 
the 2K is a mile and a quarter, and it is very close to a mile and a quarter. Mm. Um, it's just, but it, it is, there's nothing particularly, it was by all accounts, mm. the, the course, the, the 1883 Paris World Championship rowing was runner, was two kilometers long. And that just happened to be the amount of distance they could fit in a straight line. So it, 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 it was the course that made the distance, not now the distance that makes the courses. Right. Um, and it's not, it's not actually, even at the Olympics, so obviously 1883 is a while back and has some considerable history there. But the 2000 meter six lane course was not standardized at the Olympics until 1956, which is the which is the Melbourne Olympics, um, and yeah. at this moment we should we should, should say that you know um, you know uh, Australia is as far as rowing is concerned they are the real old enemy um, they are they are the thorn in our side and the the curdle in our milk of British rowing. And we have had the upper hand on them for a while now, but uh, we're, they're the people you're always afraid of that are going to pull something out of the bag. Um, they can seriously move boats down under. They, they can, and they have huge amounts of water, and they have lots of sunshine, so their rowers may photosynthesize strongly and get lots of sugar in their system to row those boats with. And they have a selection of immense physical specimens that, that just a country of their size just shouldn't really be able to produce on such a regular basis. But I suppose that's what happens when you're Ancestors were chosen by the finest English judges. Um, oh, that's it, a, that's a, that's we 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 shouldn't to that level. We just have stooped to that level, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't. We're no, I, th I I think if if we don't, we're just going to end up being the way enough rowing podcast and being very politically correct and yes. you know talking about privilege and stuff like that. And and I yes. I think that we should entirely be ready to. Just engage in banter with the Australian rowing program and Australian rowers and all of Australia in general, and effectively offer them outside, knowing I that they have to fly eleven and a half thousand miles to get here, and it probably won't happen. No, no, I, um, I feel, I feel that, I feel that's yes. We, I think, I would agree with that. I, I, I think that political, political correctness is is important and in its many forms um but i also should point out that if anyone is taking offense at this um we take the piss out of ourselves and each other far more than we take the piss out of, of anybody else so you know we, we are prepared to give it as well as take it and we we're taking you know we've made that comment it's a very old quip in english culture but they do produce fantastic rowers who beat us as cracknell and pinson found out to their cost in about 2003 i believe which saw them eventually move back to the before. Yes, they, but, but, they 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 ran from the pair. They ran from the Australian as, as, pair as, because it would have cost them a gold medal otherwise. Yeah, it, and, it, and, it, it almost became a tradition in this country running away from Antipodean pairs for yeah. for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, running away from Australian or New Zealand pairs because it'll cost us a gold medal. I mean, so yes, I'm sure that 
you know, when Matthew appears on the podcast and James appears on the podcast, they'll tell us they were, they're confident with a year to go that they would have turned it around and beaten them. But nevertheless, Jürgen made, and they might even say Jürgen took the decision. Um, but anyway, yes. So it's not, the 2K distance isn't based on the Henley course, which is 2,112 metres, I believe. That's the one. Serves me correctly. Um, because back in the day, the Henley course was different. It has moved around in time. It's not an imperial measurement of a, of a mile, even though you know rowing as a sport kind of grew out of the imperial periods of many countries. Uh, it's based it's based purely upon the fact that that's that's the distance they had. So, which is my next kind of question, because I always thought that some very very clever rowing chap or chapess, some clever rowing administrator, went for the ultimate test of physical human fitness. We need something that is that has the demands of a sprint but it's too long to be a sprint, but it's too short to be endurance. So you can't ever settle on one physiological capacity. You need to be explosively quick and brutal, but have this fantastic speed endurance as well. Let's test it. No, it's not 1,300 meters. It's not 3,000 meters. It's not 2,906 meters. It's 2,000 meters. That's going to get them every single time. So it, it wasn't a physiological decision. It was purely... It, 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 it was just, it was it was purely and and even the the two k distance on the ergometer as like if you just row on a rowing machine that that wasn't the original distance um the original distance was two thousand five hundred meters which mm-hmm. takes about yep so the the first so the classic distance I mean partly because um, that would have come out of the American collegiate system where they tend so you know they don't row they don't race over 2,000 meters that often the American collegiate races tend to be over um, you know the Ivy League races tend to be over longer distances because they have lovely big lakes um, yes and um so they the distance the test distance on the rowing machine was originally 2500 meters and i believe that when um sir stephen of redgrave became uh world indoor rowing championship that was the distance he um he was racing over again we'll have to check that um, I certainly know when he was uh, he was British rowing championship. He was doing two thousand five hundred meters, and that is also a very very tough distance. I've, I've done that a couple of times, and it's not fun. Um, but I mean, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with you that sort of like, if you can row a two k on the rowing machine or on the water in a decent time. If, if you can be part of a crew that's gone fast um, or if you've got an ergometer score, it's fundamentally, it is a massive tick in the box of your you know, physical, mental and emotional fitness to breed, you know, man or woman. If you've got a great 2K score, you have you have essentially ticked one of the boxes that says, Yes, I should actually be allowed to have children. Um, and okay, you're, you're laughing right now. I can see you laughing, but I'm you telling. have daughters. I have a daughter. Yeah. And at 
some point they're going to bring a young suitor home to meet the family. Yeah. And, and I, yes, you know, I will put I will put that young suitor on a rowing machine and ask. We will. UK scorers. Yeah, and until they can beat at least 6.45, yeah. we are going to consider them fundamentally unworthy of our daughter's hand in marriage, aren't yeah. we? You know, it, it, they could be a very nice chap. They could be a very nice chap from a, a, or, or chapesses if, if, if my daughters decide to go that way. Indeed. Um, they could they could be from a wonderful family and wonderful background. They could be mentally and emotionally stable. They could be the best fit for my children. They could have wonderful careers and be loving and caring. But I, I would, you know, I would always slightly have reservations if if they couldn't smash it out on a on a rowing machine over two thousand meters. Yeah, I really um, hope that comment doesn't come back to haunt me at a at a, at a wedding um, speech at some point in the next thirty or forty years. Um, I'm absolutely convinced it, it's going to come back to haunt me, but never mind. Never mind. Life is short. Um, yes, I think I possibly wouldn't have put it in breeding terms, but I think it is a the thing about the 2K is it is uniquely levelling. It doesn't matter if you are an Olympic champion or somebody walking in off the street. If you commit to a 2K, it's going to hurt. It never ends in anything but a puddle of pain at the end, unless you're Matthew yeah. falls back a bit. Um, so in that sense, it's a, it's a unique test. You need to be physically fit. You need to be uh, mentally fit because it, it hurts. And the biggest barriers to overcome during a 2K your body will do what your brain tells it, and your brain will tell you to stop. It, you know whether you're whether you are Steve Redgrave or whether you are me. At some point, we all face that. Just put the handle down, and this will stop. And you have to keep going if if, if you know if, if you actually want to be thought of as a as a rower. Yes, the the demons of the third five hundred meters. It's it, yeah. it's it's never easy. It's numb, and realistically, most people, if they're doing it right by one quarter of the distance through it yeah. will be at a point so well that was quite a good workout i think i can put the handle down now yeah um and and you've, and you've, you've still, still got most of it to do yeah you've still got 1500 meters to do and you're you're already knacked um so basically you know why we should keep the 2k because of tradition we've always rode over 2k it's a it's the ultimate physical and mental test emotional test as well um lewin likes to put it in terms of fitness to breed i, I will say that it's a, it, it is a, it is a supreme physical mental and emotional test what are the things i just going back to the physiological thing too short for a, a real sprint which is about 400 meters you've got about 45 seconds of, of anaerobic capacity in there which is why the 400 meter running race is, is, is such a hard one but it's too short to be true endurance physiologically is it unresponsive? Is it unresponsive to, to kind of you know taking substances? Does that um, help keep growing clean? I I, I think uh, when I have studied this, and and when I say I've studied this, I have studied this objectively by reading books and web pages. I, I have I have no practical experience of the matter. Um, there. Mo a lot of substances that list themselves as performance enhancing drugs, and even the so the stuff like erythropoietin, 
which enhance stamina almost certainly would improve you greatly over a 2k okay. um it's very good um at improving your performance between four and 20 minutes of uh proper effort um but even kind of like stuff like the anabolic steroids which one of the, the which aren't really performance enhancing they're, they're much more training enhancing. They would allow you to go harder for longer, more often, and recover better. And there are, there, there are definite suggestions that um, testosterone and testosterone-like substances have an erythropoietic effect, which is one of the reasons why 72-kilogram lightweight men still go considerably faster than 94-kilogram heavyweight women um, because they they're essentially um, lightweight, man, lightweight men have more red bl blood cells per pint of blood than heavyweight women. Um, so... Uh, the, there, there are definite suggestions that it would help. It would make you stronger. It would vastly improve your performance over the shorter distances. So I, I think within that, that kind of idea that there's a pill that you can get in every single gym that would improve your performances up to about 1,500 meters, but be less responsive beyond that. I think there's a lot to be said of keeping the longer distance, the 2K, over anything shorter, because I think it's actually harder to dope for, but not impossible. And there's still this kind of suggestion. There's this, uh, which I suppose we're, we're unfortunately doing our part to ruin, that the, you don't, you, you can't really... Um, you can't really dope for rowing. You can't really dope for the 2K test, um, which I'm not entirely sure is, strictly speaking, true. But having that suggestion, I think, is a very, very good thing. I think that's helped keep, keep rowing clean. Yeah. Um, whereas whereas uh, shorter distances, I, you know, certainly if we look, if we look on Instagram, shall we say, if we if we look on the current rowing greats of the internet or agometer greats of the internet who are immensely buff and have incredibly large deltoid and trapezoid and pectoral muscles, particularly the upper pectoral muscles, which respond very well to testosterone. I'm talking endogenous testosterone, of course, because I'd never want to cast dispersions. Um, the, these kind of unofficial greats of modern indoor rowing, many of them seem to be very, very good at shorter distances rather than longer distances. And I'm just, I'm just aware that if we shortened that 2K distance, many people would think that there are shortcuts that could help. Okay. Um, okay. That I, I, I don't. That, that I would worry about immensely. Now, I mean, do you... Sorry. I was going to say, essentially, though, we, so 
We There are good reasons for keeping the 2K distance. It's a great mental and physical test. Uh, you need to be both talented and immensely fit to do it, so you've got to train hard. It's not impossible to dope for, but if we move to a shorter distance, people might think that it's, it's more viable to dope for, and therefore, in what is a relatively clean sport, you know, um, historically, we might start to see the issues that other sports have had in the past. But realistically, there's no particular reason why the 2K is the gold standard format. It, it was fairly arbitrary. They just dug a ditch that was that long. and we've Yeah, it. essentially. Well, so, well no, they, I, I think they just put, they just chose the longest straight bit of the Seine near Paris. Right. Um, I, I, I think is the is the argument to it that didn't have a ridiculously high flow rate going through because the the, yeah. the the same through Paris I, I think flows very very quickly so that they might have had to get like a, a shorter shallower a bit of it. Yeah, I, um, I, having having rode having rode on the Thames and having been to Paris and seen the Seine when it's when it's running, I wouldn't like to take a boat out on the on the Seine. I'd, I'd, I'd happily go back out on the Thames in central London. But not in central Paris. So maybe why yeah. they used, maybe why they used um, the Henley Reach for the post-war Olympics. So it was it was kind of it was long enough and and, and stream-free enough to actually have a competition on. But and if, it's lovely. And it's lovely. It's and, I mean, you know it it is, it is simply it is a wonderful place to row and and that, that that's that's another. Because we're, we're going to talk about Henley, but uh, I, I think we should talk about it because it, it is such a it's it's like Oz in the Wizard of Oz. It, it's the place if you're a rower of any level, you actually want to um, you want to row at. I think this but is what true. Is, but but if if there are good reasons for keeping the two K, what are the reasons for not keeping the two K as a? Well, from my point of view, it. One of the things that people complain about is that it makes it is the exclusivity of rowing, and and I think one of the problems with um, the exclusivity of rowing is that it is very much stamina athletes only these days need apply. There there was this thing, you know, certainly when I started watching rowing, and you were listening to Dan Topolsky on the Olympics or on the boat race. And he said, well, you see, it's like a sprint that goes on for seven minutes. You know, these days it's not, it's, it's, it's an endurance event. And really, if you're going to be great at the, at 2k rowing, you you need to be an endurance athlete. You need to be a naturally talented endurance athlete, and you need to train like an endurance athlete. And that means you need to do a huge amount of time in the boat, on the water, on the rowing machine, going quite slowly. The rowing, um, we're talking about the rowing pyramid. We're the building rowing, up the rowing yeah. pyramid. It, it, yeah. it, it's based on it, it's based on a foundation of long, slow distances and doing lots of it, and it takes a huge amount of time out of your life. Um, and I also think that you get a certain exclusivity in terms of the type of athlete. If you want to broaden the appeal of rowing, I think you need to broaden it to people who are more explosive, more inclined towards strength and arguably strength and finesse at the same time. 
I, I think the shorter distance requires a greater level of peak speed, which therefore requires a greater level of skill yeah. um, and, and actual boat moving ability. You, you've got to move instead of just like, you know, the, the Kiwi pair were very famous for getting their boat up to top speed and just staying there. You could, you could be leading them at a thousand meters, but you just, you, you couldn't keep up with them. They had their top speed. They kept going. Um, they proved that they were capable of accelerating and sprinting back in, I think it was the Kayapiro World Championships in, what was it, 2011 maybe, when they beat um, Reed and Triggs Hogg by the smallest of margins. Um but in general, all they did was they got up to a top speed. Their top speed was just high enough that no one could stay with them. Mm. If you're going to race a 1K, if you're going to race a 1,200 meters, the metric three-quarter mile, if you race, dear me, 800 meters, you need to whip it up off the start to an immense peak speed and then just desperately try and hang on. And I think there are a wider range of athletes that would be able to find a way to do that. There would be stamina athletes who could do that and come through in the last 150 meters. There are going to be explosive athletes. You know, it's the same as like the 1500 meters or the 800 meters in running. There are different ways to be great at running that race. And there are different Whereas with the 2K, I'm going to say there's one way of being great at the 2K. And you need to be an immensely well-adapted and immensely well-trained endurance athlete who has spent, and I, I think this affects club rowing more than it does Olympic rowing because anybody who does an Olympic sport has to de- dedicate huge amounts of their life to it. But I'm going to say that the fact that you, even to be good at club rowing, you need to dedicate a huge amount. You need to do your six sessions a week. You need to spend, you know, what is it, at least 50K a week on the rowing machine, realistically. Um, and then a similar amount of time in the boat. That takes a huge amount of time. And the people we're missing in the sport of rowing in this country in particular are guys with jobs, girls with families in the prime of their life, in in their late twenties to mid thirties. Those are the people we're not getting in rowing. And I think if we had a shorter distance, maybe as a club standard, maybe not necessarily an Olympic standard, but if there was a shorter distance as a club standard, this would uh, enable people with busier lives to be great. I think you can do less training, albeit very hard training, and still be very, very good at 1K. That, that, that is my opinion. I think that's a good point, because what, what should be kind of noted when we went through our own trajectories before was that, that you and I, and a lot of people at Agecroft, because Agecroft was that kind of club, we kind of kept rowing and training at a point where most people 
have already given it up. And most people will do it at university and they'll keep it up for a few years, maybe when they start their career. And then as they get through their mid-20s and into their late-20s, other things will kind of come in. Um, career demands, um, partners, families, all of the, all of the stuff of, of life. And Agecroft was unique in the sense that, that we all had full-time jobs in, in the professions and we all worked very hard. But, you know, routinely, on a, on a light week, we would be doing at least another 20 hours plus a week training. Um, that's hard to fit in around a, you know, a, I mean, a nominal 40-hour-a-week job that's usually probably closer to 50 or 60. And then you're, you're training after that, you're training before that job, you're spending your weekends training or racing. Um, yeah, it's a huge demand. There's also the fact, and, and you know, I'm I'm from the north, so I'm not naturally vain. I, I have a certain rugged northern barbarian quality, but I, I basically I, I comb my hair using using pig fat and bristles, and I shave using a sheath knife and four figure. But if you do the kind of yes, me too, actually. All oh, right, well, I find it's it, very effective. Yeah, but you, you you do it as a southern hipster thing. I do it because, <laughs> because in the north, all that, we that's have just a, how you learn to be a man. That's how you learn to be a man. Until you've killed your first pig fat, um, you've you've not actually lived. Uh, you you haven't crossed the threshold to manhood. Um, if you do that volume of training, you will get fantastically fit. And, and let's not forget, you know, we we threw a lot of weights around at Agecroft. The hour of power left grown men vomiting in buckets strategically placed around the side of the clubhouse. Um, the circuit training um, left people gasping in, in puddles of water like fish that have been flicked out of the river and can no longer breathe. Uh, but you don't end up looking like an Instagram model. You don't end up looking particularly... You don't. Your, your fitness is not outwardly manifest to the rest of the world in, in terms of your bicep size, unless, of course, you're Ben Charles, in which case he did work the guns a lot. But... For all of that training, what you get is the satisfaction of moving a boat very quickly, which is immensely satisfying, and uh, being very, very fit, but not necessarily looking it. I mean, take a look at some pictures of, of the men's heavyweights from the Olympics. They have little roles. They're, they're, they're not rocking Instagram six-packs. You know, they're, they're, yes, life I, is not forgiving in that, in that regard. And I, I, I do think that that's not necessarily... In in these days of great vanity, even if, if such vanity does not extend north of Watford Gap, I don't think that's a particularly good thing for the sport. I don't, you know, I I have I do think that there is a certain outwardly manifest physicality to most rowers who've been doing it for sort of like maybe eighteen months or more. Yeah. You know, there, there is a there is a certain kind of broad-shouldered, narrow-waisted, slim-hipped um, vigour to rowers that is probably very attractive. But no, it doesn't It doesn't give you... You don't get beach body ready um, by, being, uh, by being a rower. Um, I, 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 I think you, you get much more kind of like three-piece suit body ready, um, which yeah. is not quite the same thing. No. Um, and I, and I think if you had a, a shorter distance where where working the guns was more important, where whether where the ten by three hundred was more important than the three by two k as a as a training piece, yeah, I, I suspect that 
we might we might present a more fashionable physique to the world as rowers. Possibly. I mean, it, it must be said, um, Cosmopolitan and Men's Health or GQ have never, ever printed a Dennis O'Neill mid-November heavy week training session as a getting shape for the beach. <laughs> Um, things, it's kind of the wrong time of year, but you know, I know what you mean. It, it, it's like, you know, um, so, so, so if we shorten the distance, what you're saying is we'll, we'll have faster, closer, closer, potentially more exciting races. There'll potentially, be certain, there'll be a certain amount of tactics potentially because you'll have explosive athletes who might want to get out in front and hang on. You'll have endurance athletes who will want to uh, maybe uh, come through in the last 100, 150 meters. There's more ways to be great at rowing because you could you can sprint and display stamina. Uh, for, oh, the think club, so. for the club rower, it might it might help lessen the training load somewhat. Um, I mean, you you also have to you also have to bear in mind that you know we've talked about rowing as a beehive, and once you're in, you're in. And actually, as rowers, we tend to be quite proud of our status as, as rowers, and we tend to be quite proud of the amount of work that we do. So, these suggestions might get a reaction from the rowing community and is that i've worked really hard to be good at 2k and now you're just letting you know anyone who can rag an erg and can have a go at it but well i i think that's the that's the biggest disadvantage of choosing a shorter distance for me that would be very much somewhere between 800 meters and 1200 meters I think- um i'm not talking about 500 meter race because i do i do look at that and say that's that's not that doesn't make sense. That's not rowing. No. But, you know, e- even those... Yeah. It has it, to be long enough that you... It has to be long enough that you can row and short enough that it it, it, it becomes exciting because there, there are so many potential ways to race it and so many potential... Yeah. Things. The other thing that's really important, and, and, it, and it should be noted, you live in an, in an area of the world where um, you've noted the lack of rowing facilities... Digging a rowing yeah. lake, digging a 2,000-meter rowing lake, whether it's for um, a national water sports center, whether it's for an Olympics, whether it's for a club, it, it costs a huge amount of money. And a lot of the, you know, a, a lot of the costs, the cost of the Olympics has spiraled, absolutely spiraled, you know, and it's really moving away from the sport for all in, inclusive model where you need highly specialized equipment and highly specialized venues to actually do it in. And, and you know, how many of these rowing lakes, I mean, obviously Dorney, but Dorney belongs to Eaton, so it was being used anyway. And a lot of the old Thames regattas, like Wallingford and Met and Marlow, are now, co- are now contested on, on Dorney rather than on, on the Thames. How many of these rowing lakes that, that we dig for these major events and these major things actually get used and, and, and have a, a useful half-life afterwards? Is there not a saving in having a shorter distance? Is there? Will it not open up more stretches of river for fun regattas for 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 people to get together and row if we shorten the distance, as well as the the benefits in terms of racing potential and that kind of thing? And and I also think, I mean, I'm I'm not certain of the economics here, but I think that digging a one thousand meter rowing lake of nominal width will actually be more than or it, it will be the saving will be more than you would expect it's not just going to be half the price of a 2000 meter rowing lake 
because a 2000 meter rowing leg the land you're going to have to buy is going to stretch across many many boundaries and each time you buy another parcel of that land the land further downstream or, or to stretch your rowing like out to 2000 meters is going to become progressively more expensive yeah. and I, I i think that building your 1000 meter rowing lake it's going to be a lot cheaper just to buy the land um and to sort it out and also you, you were saying dawny dawny does get a hell of a lot of use do you know who it gets use from yeah starting triathletes <laughs> there are there are more triathlons and i'm not i'm not sure if you can include corporate regattas because i think there are quite a few corporate regattas but certainly open regattas open to the public regattas there are more triathlons held at dawny lake than there are rowing races well there you go that says a lot um so yeah i i i think I, i think a shorter fatter course might be might well benefit so on the pros so on the pros Shorter, faster races, uh, but not, but races that where multiple outcomes are possible because it'll favour different types of athlete. Uh, there's economic cost savings potentially for Olympics and World Championships, and the development of, of other water sports centres for for users. Uh, for the club rower, um, who and I'm I'm you know as a club rower, I was inordinately proud of the amount of work that that we got through. And you know, being a rower is a is a badge that you wear. It's something that you take on, and I completely get that. But it might help people who are in the sport stay in the sport when reality bites with regards to jobs and life and careers and and all of those things. Here's the question, though: Given what we said about the arbitrary nature of the lightweight category being imposed uh, in the last podcast. How likely is it that the rowing distance will move from the 2K distance down to a shorter distance for international events in future? Um, I, I, I think that unless, so from my point of view, I think that you, you will probably see, it, 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 even by our relatively advanced stage, it's not around the corner, but I think, so we're losing lightweight rowing in 2024 that will be the last ever lightweight rowing competition um it will then go to coastal rowing which has very little limits on how far you can row um but there there has been an ioc document on this that says that bidding nations should make more use of natural water features and natural geographical features rather than digging you know rather than doing building a sailing lake or one of these things but one one of the things that this seems particularly pointed for is that you don't have to build a 2000 meter eight lane rowing lake you can build you can just take up that there's a city center lake that is 1200 meters long and you can you can put boys down the middle of it and race on that and i i i think it is very likely um certainly by 2032 but quite possibly by 2028 
and we haven't decided who's bidding for 2028 yet, um, we will see either one of those two, they will not be run over the 2,000 metre course. Yeah, I think, um, I think so. Because let's not forget when you dig out a 2,000 metre eight lane rowing lake, you also have to dig out a warm up lake and feed area and you have to put all of the infrastructure, yeah. all, all, all of the infrastructure around it. Now, obviously, you know, in, in Greece, um, it was contested on, on Lake Skinny Acid. Rio, it was in the harbour, if I remember. Yes, and... You know that that was that was one of the first times that they'd had capsizings um, in a very very long time in Olympic rowing because of the state of the water on on that. So the, the yeah the the Rio Lagoon was subject to a fair bit of chop and people did poo. not enjoy that. Yeah. No, it had a fair bit of poo a fair bit of poo. Uh, the occasional fish, which which slowed the British women's um, double down, um, but yeah, there is no. There's, I, I, it, there are very very great advantages to dropping the distance down in terms of the sheer logistics. I personally think that if we do that, in about twenty five years time, there will be. A podcast or whatever they do, I don't know, a braincast where there will be two people, so possibly our children, talking about how much better rowing was back in the day when they rode on the 2K lake. Eight lanes in a straight line, none of this natural water around bends, um, none of this nonsense. Um, you know, it was a real test of uh, human physicality yeah and i i I do think that um you know the biggest disadvantage of going to a shorter distance whatever that may be whether that is the 1600 meter metric mile or 800 meter or something in between the real disadvantage will be in everybody's mind it's just not 2k and and that that will affect rowers more than casual spectators to the sport, um, and I think it's casual spectators to the sport, namely the people who watch the Olympics, who will have more of a decision to make about this than than rowers will, uh, which is a shame. But I I think that we should begin to emotionally and physically prepare ourselves as rowers for outcome personally. Okay, I think that's fair. I think, I think that the only thing that we can, we can ever guarantee in life is is that things will change, and and in much the same way that I'm sure that the people in 1883 said, well, this isn't a proper race. Back in my day, of Doggett's coat and badge, we raced for being the honour of the King's Waterman, and those who didn't succeed were summarily shot at Tower Bridge. Um, yeah. Which seems fair. I mean, that's that's. It's basically it's basically seat racing. You know, that, that's rowing in, in that's that's rowing in a nutshell basically you know you make it or you or you don't um I, yes we have an emotional investment in the 2k you know we wear we wear our status as rowers as badges we like being rowers you know we, we'd never admit it because we're all big bluff and hearty and we we don't have inner emotional landscapes and lives but we're proud of the amount of work that we do it would be a huge sea change can i just add though because this seems like a good place to maybe wrap up episode two 
I think I so. Welcome, I would welcome this change, and here's why. I had a 632K score that I could produce pretty much at will, and Dennis always pointed out that all of my other scores said that I should be much, much faster for a man of my height and weight and half kidney. Um, my 1K score, I would be I would be having medals coming out of my arse right now. My 1K score was, was, as, was good. It was a damn sight better than my 2K score. I would welcome the change to a, short, to a shorter distance. I would have been all over that. All Again, over. I, I think it comes down to the fact that you're getting more out of more different body systems. Yeah. You know, realistically, what, what are they saying about the 2K distance these days? It's 80% aerobic. 1K is about... I, I think it's probably about 60-40 yeah, aerobic yeah. to anaerobic. And if, if you've got a damn big anaerobic engine in there, you can swim in the lactate bath for long enough. Yeah. You can produce an immense 1K score. And you can't, you know, I've, I, you know I've, I've seen some of the top 1K scores on the ergometer and they still make my head spin. But I do, I do think um, that, that in many ways it's a more rounded test. I think. It, so. Yeah. I think so. Um, and, on, and on that note, this has been episode two of um, the Broken North podcast with Dr. Lewin Hines and myself, Dr. Jackson. We'd just like to point out that that at the moment we have no sponsors. If you would like to sponsor us, uh, Rock the Boat would like to throw us some free T-shirts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yanis Stanley, I, I will happily receive a free boat from you if, um, if um, you've got going we, we open to offers. We're open to T-shirts. If anybody from British Rowing happens to hear this podcast and realizes that we're talking sense and would like to bring us in for consultancy roles as to how we can make the sport better, having been at the grassroots level, um, we would we would love to talk to you. We, if you want to come on this podcast. Honestly, really, given what you've just heard, that's bold. But at some point, anyway, we will be back. We don't know what we'll be talking about next time because, quite frankly, we're just out in the pair having fun on the river. That's pretty much why we're doing it. <laughs> thank you for uh, listening. Thank you for listening, um, and we hope to see you and hear you again soon. Thank you very much indeed. All the best. Bye.